Uh, well, uh, open your Bibles to um, our, our, our Christmas story today. It comes from an unusual place. If you're visiting with us today, open your Bibles, go online, get your phone out, Google it. Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. You're like, Revelation, isn't that what I hear all the movies are made out of? And you're like, well, it's sort of. Um, there's a Christmas story in there too. Uh, if you weren't here last week, we, we started a two-part sermon in uh, Revelation chapter 12, John's Revelation. It's, it's, uh, it's the most confusing book in the Bible, poetry, prophecy, end times, all throughout Revelation. It's the, uh, it's, it's the book that is written in a way, in a style that we can't just come to it and read it like it's a letter. Read it like it was, you know, supposed to be taken at face value. It's, it's uh, symbolic. It's a symbolic book. It's a book that tells us a story using uh, metaphors and illustrations and symbolism throughout it. It's apocalyptic symbolism. And part of this uh, symbolism or this symbolic realism is describing the spiritual realities that exist behind uh, actual historical events. To sort of describe this alternate realm, so to speak, of what we can actually see and what's actually happened in the course of history. And part of what Revelation gets at in chapter 12, this symbolic realism, is a um, massive red dragon. I'm not making this up. This is why I had you turn to Revelation chapter 12. You think I'm crazy this morning. It's in the Bible, Revelation 12. A massive red dragon in the birthing moments of Christmas waiting to devour the baby that would be born. And if you didn't walk out of here last week singing Silent Night, I don't blame you. Um, but last week's message, uh, it didn't take long for it to have a quick impact. Uh, it wasn't but hours before I started getting text messages from people who were inspired by last week's message, so much so that they decided to do something about it. And one of you sent me this picture. I thought was a classic, beautiful addition. I think that's like ceramic dragon right there, along with the little baby Jesus. And um, we were talking and laughing with some of our campus pastors this past week about, you know, some some folks. The reaction on their face when Steve last week said, you know, we're gonna learn about the dragon, the woman, and the the the, the baby, the deliverer. And some of your faces were like. And Pastor Dexter over at our Gary campus, he joked. He said, at Gary, we should have called this Christmas in Jurassic Park. This morning. More, more like what, what it should have been. It's a little bit of what it feels like. And, and so if, if you're here today and you're, you came to watch like one of your nieces or nephews sing on stage and you're like, what, the, what type of church is this? I, just, I, I get your confusion. Just hang in there with, you, with me for a moment. I'm going to do a little bit of uh, summary of what we talked about last week as we continue on and see where, where all of this is going as it relates to Christmas. Dragons, certainly in nativity scenes, it feels insane, preposterous, um, almost like science fiction. But John... The one who has the revelation, the revelator, John the revelator, he, 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 he writes this down and records it in a way because he needed a form of literature that would get at the, the imagination, that would elevate the significance of this historical reality that there is a severe spiritual battle being waged at Christmas time. Apocalyptic literature, it was quite common in the first century. Last week, Pastor Steve mentioned that this, and this, I think it's worth repeating, that uh, back in this day, this was a very common way that people would uh, talk about things and, and, and try and communicate spiritual truths and communicate with one another by telling these types of stories. And lest we think we are beyond this in our society, we have a whole industry and a whole 
town dedicated to this exact thing. We call it Hollywood. We are people who love apocalyptic stories. We are people who can communicate in symbolic realism just like they were 2,000 years ago. And so before we looked out our noses at them, we realized this isn't so far-fetched from how we tell stories today. Apocalyptic literature has great power to grab the imagination with disturbing and graphic images that drive the author's point home. And here's what we see. Here's what we see in, um, in this. The revelation is about the unmatchable holiness and power of God Almighty. And I just want to walk through Revelation 12 again just for, for the purpose of uh, being thorough here. Verse 1 of chapter 12 says this, A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. It doesn't take a genius to point out that birth is painful. I myself have never experienced that. All the men were like, amen. No, 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 no. I say that for you. Don't say it out loud. You get that. I've seen my wife give birth three times, um, and I would just note that it's one of the reasons why I know she's more heroic than I am. We, um, we think about Christmas as a birthday. We, we think about it more, though, in the terms of like, hey, congratulations, you're five, you're 10, good job, you're 12, you know, like that type of, but, but we forget the fact that there was labor on this day. There was, there was incredible pain at Christmas time. John doesn't want us to focus on the novelty of a birthday, but rather the vulnerability of this moment. Here we have a virgin girl giving birth to her firstborn son. She's already terrified. She's already worried. She's already scared. If we understand this woman to be God's people, particularly expressed through Mary on Christmas... I don't know uh, if if you have had a child, some of you women have had children, and um, you might have had your kids um, in a hospital. You may have elected to have your kids in the comfort of your own home, but not many people have chosen to give birth to their child in a barn. And here we have an incredibly vulnerable girl in the midst of her most vulnerable moments, weakest moments, this, this, this impossible task ahead of her that requires a miracle. She's singularly focused on how to bring this child into the world. And um, I remember, not to share too much, sorry. I remember um, standing, holding my wife's hand. I wasn't standing, I was sitting, let's be honest. Sitting there, sipping my coffee while my wife is in labor. And I remember her just, like, focused. Like, this baby's coming. The nurses are shouting. They're encouraging her. I could have, you know, if I, was a, if I was a disinterested dad, man, for all it's worth, I could have been playing games on my iPhone, you know, just totally out of the room. But my wife is there focused singularly on a mission. You can imagine the um, horror that must have befell this woman as she realizes that her midwife in this moment is not someone who's on her side, but a red dragon. Some of you women who have given birth, you might have thought your doctor in the labor process was a dragon. <laughs> you might have even called her the devil 
or him the devil. But um, this is the reality for this woman. The dragon stands before this woman giving birth. He is poised to devour the child. I can't imagine a more frightening situation, honestly. This woman cannot run away. She cannot hide from the dragon. She has zero hope, which is soul-crushing. Because honestly, the baby that is born to this woman is literally humanity's last hope. This is the long-awaited child that's going to put an end to all of the chaos and confusion around the world. If this baby doesn't survive, all is lost. One commentator wrote it this way. Uh, He says, this is an epic pageant of intense, unprotected goodness confronted with a shocking evil that looks powerful, inevitable, and devastating. And then if you keep reading, which you remember last week if you were here, at just the right time, God intervenes and snatches the baby once the baby is born immediately out of the hands of the woman, out of the teeth of the dragon, and snatches the baby up to heaven, out of Satan's reach. And history, from the perspective of Scripture and redemption, it could be described often as Satan seeking constantly to devour the child, to thwart the purposes of God, which are for salvation and healing through the Christ, through the gospel and the church. And Satan is a parasite. He's a destroyer. And not only is he at the manger, his influences are all around us, everywhere where God is at work. And he is the enemy of God. He hates God. He hates everything because all was made by God. He is absolutely and completely evil. Peter, in his uh, writings, talks about the the devil as a roaring lion. All throughout Scripture, we have this, a a hungry lion ready to pounce on its prey. We, We have him as a serpent who's trying to deceive. And here in Revelation, we have him as a dragon who is seeking to destroy And all of that kind of catches us up to speed in the story where we find the woman after giving birth in verse 6. Look look at verse 6 with me. The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. 1,260 days, that comes out to roughly three and a half years. That'll come back a little bit later. But for the the first part here, I just want to focus on this. The, The woman flees to the wilderness. Um, I don't know about you, but if you, if you watch some of the wildfires going through California right now, people's mansions just being leveled, and you see some people fleeing, and um, imagine living in California right now, having this, this just horrific situation, having nowhere to go except for to fly back east towards the desert. To us, that seems brutal. To us, that seems like, oh my goodness, like, like how awful. Um, but to Israel... This reminds them of the most amazing days in their whole entire story. The wilderness is not some place that's remote apart from any type of Target or Starbucks. The wilderness is the place where God has set up a place for them to be nourished and provided for. Much of this story here in Revelation is is told using sensational language that would have reminded the Israelites and the Jews of that day of of their best days, of their exodus days of the days when they were in slavery in Egypt and God called them out of Egypt to go be his own people in their own land. 
fled into the wilderness. That's, that's language that would have reminded the people that John was writing to you that at one point in their history when it looked like the enemy was coming close to them to devour them when they were the most vulnerable they had ever been and they had no hope, God miraculously intervened at the last possible moment and opened the Red Sea. God allowed them safe passage into the wilderness where God nourished them for years. He fed them every day with manna. He had water coming out of rocks. He, he was present with and among them in the desert. So the, the wilderness is not so much about the commute back to civilization as much as it is about the refuge of God. The wilderness is a place of God's nourishment and it's a place of his provision and a place of his protection. It's a place where you will abandon all that you have built your life upon to, to let it all go and recognize how completely and absolutely dependent upon God you actually are for your daily sustenance. The wilderness is a sweet place because it's a place where God is your only hope. This is a theme that we're going to come back to in a moment. The rest of this story deals with the doom of the dragon, the preservation of the woman, and the victory of the baby. And I've Yet to hear a two-part sermon that's generated so much interest. So many of you guys, it's like you didn't want to read ahead. You just wanted to come to church and say, hey, we can't figure out, we can't wait to hear how the story ends. So let's, uh, let's dive into it. You guys ready? You're like, I, well, what have we been doing, Dan? I thought, we were, I thought this was ending. I thought that was it. The baby gets snatched up to heaven. Done. No, there's more. There's more. Verse 7. Check it out. Now war arose in heaven. That's a great movie. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. The deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth. And his angels were thrown down with him. This war, just to, to, to clarify, this war is for the right to occupy heaven. We got a lot of wars on earth, don't we? I mean, I'm watching this thing in North Korea, not sure how that's going to go. Watching this thing in Jerusalem with, with the Israelis and the Palestinians, not sure how that's going to go. Watching things all around the globe, just, just rights to occupy. That's what war's about. And in this war, the dragon, Satan himself, is, is trying to occupy heaven. We can't think of a war in heaven as some sort of war like in the sky, maybe the ultimate Star Wars. It's too easy. We have to think about it um, a different way. So many of you have um, a Netflix account that keeps you occupied, and you've watched that show, Stranger Things. And in this show, there's this realm called the Upside Down, right? It's, it's like this, this overlying realm that exists on top of everything else that only some who have eyes to see it can see it. And when we think of war in heaven, it's not so much a place that is up in the stratosphere that is, is, it is necessarily another realm. There's another realm by which this war is taking place. And apparently, even after the fall of Satan, Satan had access to heaven. And he was there as the, accusers of, as the accuser of the brethren. Sometimes we'll use that phrase, devil's advocate. I mean, it's like, like, like we're going to argue, and you agree with me, but you're going to take the opposing side just because people like to argue. It's the dumbest thing. Let's just agree. 
make s'mores and sing kumbaya. It'd be great. But we have devil's advocates, which is an incredibly ironic statement. Because uh, in heaven, there is no devil's advocate. There is no one who takes the side of the devil. And in fact, the devil himself, we read it in verse 10, he needs no advocate and he himself is no advocate for anyone. He is the accuser. He is the prosecuting attorney. He is the one who, who, who has taken it up on his own initiative and his own right to be the one who accuses all of God's people in the presence of God. In my neighborhood, uh, we have like a homeowners association, which means we have bylaws and things like I can't leave my trash cans outside overnight and I've got to keep a light on a certain type of day and my Christmas decorations have to come from Pottery Barn and all this stuff. (laughs) There's a lady that drives around my neighborhood and if you're here, I'd like to talk to you. She drives around our neighborhood. She's never caught me because I'm a law-abiding citizen. But my neighbors across the street, she's caught many times, burning things and whatnot. And... um, we know what car she drives, we know who she is, and she is the devil. <laughs> too far? I know when my wife goes like this, that's too far. No, 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 she, she made it her job to point out all the violations in our neighborhood. This, this is what it looks like for, for the devil on a grand scale. He is aware of everything that you've done wrong and the penalty that comes with it. He's not satisfied for you just to know that you fall short. He wants you to know that he knows in the presence of God that you fall short. So the devil's scheme, his whole entire existence has been to to cause chips and cracks in the foundations of our lives so that when we stand before God, he could be right there and say, God, I know what he did. He is your accuser. He is the one that reminds you of all the ways that you fall short. When you sin, if you're a Christian, you have two competing realities in your heart in the same moment. You have the Holy Spirit, which is there convicting you that, that, ooh, that was too far. And you also have the enemy right there as well, telling you it's too far, so just go a little farther. You're not good enough. God can't love you. And this war in heaven put an end to that. This war breaks out. All hell breaks loose. And Michael, Michael defeats the the devil. In In the scriptures, Michael is the archangel. He's the most powerful created being other than Satan. I want you to look again at verse, um, verse 9. The great, uh, verse 8, sorry. Nope, verse 7. Let's do them all. War arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. This is a great setup, isn't it? This, like, some of you went and saw that new Star Wars movie recently, and there's, like, probably some epic battles, because that's every Star Wars movie. Um, Terrible movie if it's literally the force fought against the other people and the force won. Right? That's an awful movie. You're not giving $10 to go watch that movie. And that's what we have here. The dragon fought against the archangel and he lost. Reminds me, honestly, of Star Wars. Uh, If you saw last year's movie, um, I think it was called Rogue One. 
The inspiration from Rogue One wasn't necessarily a book that was written. It was, it was one line in the middle of that little thing that plays at the beginning of the Star Wars movies. In the galaxy long ago, far away land, I'm a terrible Star Wars nerd. I don't know what it actually is. Um, there's one line. It says, um, and the, 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 uh, the good people stole the plans from the Death Star. And from that, they created this whole entire movie. And showed you all of these things of how, how it all went down and how, how this, this war went down. And you know what we don't have here in Revelation chapter 12? We have zero details as to the battle that was waged in heaven. One day I want to see that movie. Like one day when, when we're in glory and there's a little bit of, of, of ability for us to reflect upon history, I want God to show us that battle. But scripture doesn't record anything of it. It's simply they fought and the devil lost. Why? Why not more details? Why not more information? Why not anything here? It's simply this. It's because it wasn't a fight. There there was no struggle. Uh, Michael and his team of angels kicked the enemy out of their rightful space. There's no sweat There's no work to that. The enemy was defeated decisively. He was doomed. What we don't see in Revelation is some sort of dualistic world where there's this cosmic gridlock between good and evil where it takes a lot of work and we don't know how it's going to end and if if only we could try harder to catch a break or get this thing, then we're going to have a clear path to victory. No, it's just like, all right, devil, you're done. Boom, be gone with you. This is the power of our God. This is the power of those who are under his control. And notice where he is thrown. He's thrown out of the realm of God and into the realm of humanity. He's confined now to space and to time. And he is limited to this created realm. He's um, sent to earth by God. And isn't it interesting this time of year for us to think about another who is sent to earth by God? John wants us to realize that not only did God send Christ at Christmas time, but God also banished the devil here too. Which in one sense, um, we'll get to this in a moment, but in one sense that's like awesome. Like hallelujah God, you're, you're victorious. But in another sense, it feels like we're swimming in a swimming pool with a great white shark. Imagine, some of you have pools in your backyard. Imagine if um, you built it just big enough to house a great white shark. What is that, like 15 feet long? You could, some of your pools could fit this. And um, this thing, if you, if you put a giant great white shark in a swimming pool, what would happen? It'd get a little angry, wouldn't it? You're definitely not throwing the kids in there with it, is it? are you? Maybe the dog, but not the kids. Historically, big things that are aggressive react poorly to being confined. D.A. Carson made this point in his commentary uh, about Adolf Hitler. At the end of World War II, when um, Allied forces were invading after Normandy was accomplished and after the the Red Army on the the Eastern Front was was pushing into Berlin, uh, Hitler was trapped. Everybody knew the war was over except for Hitler. And he issued order after order that his generals might be put to death if they did not fight with the fury of hell. And so the bloodiest 
battles occur, and he goes down in, in history as being a deranged lunatic at the end of the war. Why? Because evil lashes out at confinement. This is what is true of the devil. Here on earth, confined, bound, restricted. He is cornered. He's on the clock. His time is ticking away. And he lashes out at any that come in his way. But notice this. He is doomed. Amen? He's doomed. Why is he here? It's not because he has power. It's because he's awaiting his final judgment here on earth. I want to say it this way. If he's a dragon, he's a defanged dragon. He is, in one sense, furious and enraged, but he has no teeth. He has no grit. He has no power. He's dangerous and capable of damage, but he is doomed. And if he can't get God's presence, maybe he can get God's people. Once he's expelled from heaven, he wages a second front on his war. It's a war here on earth. He goes after God's people, which is symbolically represented by this woman. Look at verse 13 with me. It says, And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. That's a code again for three years, time being one times being two, so one plus two is three, and half a time being three and a half. It's the same as earlier in verse six. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. All right, if this didn't get weird for you yet, it just got weird now. Here's what's happening. If, he can't, if the dragon can't kill the child, and if he can't be present in heaven, then he is going to come after the one who delivered the child. And amid the bloodthirsty imagery of the dragon, pathologically trying to kill the loved ones of God, the focus that John wants us to see here is not actually on the viciousness of the dragon, but, but truly on how God protects and provides for his people. I think he really wants us to see that no matter how awful the attacks of the enemy might feel here on earth, God protects, provides, and preserves his people. Amen? I mean, so many of your lives are testimonies to this exact thing. Where, where you know the feeling that it is that evil is all around you, and yet God has been your source and your strength in the midst of the flood. Notice how God provides for this woman. It's very strange. The first example God gives the woman wings like an eagle. She's able to fly away and escape to the wilderness. Why? Why wings? Well, if a dragon's after you, what do you need? Tap into your inner sixth grader. You need wings. You need to fly. And so God gives her what she needs Wings like an eagle sounds pretty good. Could have given her wings like an ostrich. Those don't help. You want wings like an eagle. Soar higher and faster and farther away than the dragon. Notice the second example of what God provides. It's a little 
grotesque, but it's easily understood. The symbolic imagery, Satan vomits a river at the woman, but the earth opens up and keeps the river from reaching the woman. Again, John, I think, is referencing that time that the Jewish people would recall in their history. That one point that there was a river of water that looked like it was going to pin the people down against the pursuing army. And yet the earth opened wide. The people walked across dry land. The enemy was then swallowed up by the earth. Friends, what's the lesson that John's trying to teach us here? It's this. It's that if God has called his people to free to be free from the enemy. If God has called his people to live a life apart from the enemy, if God has called his people to be free from the enemy, he will fight the enemy for them. He will give us all that we need in the midst of the battle so that we might not be harmed but preserved. What great comfort that is for us. I mean, if you look at the, at the text, you wonder, well, what is it that the woman did? What was the incantation? What were the words that she said? How did she pray? Oh, wait. We have no idea. God simply showed up and delivered her. Only God could do this. See, if God has a path forward, no matter how dark the hour seems, no matter how bleak it is, you cannot count God out. He will protect his people. And he, friends, he will protect you. Verse 17, this is the end of the story. The dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold fast to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. The dragon's failure to kill the woman, God's protection of his people, it causes the dragon to turn all of his ire, all of his venom, all of his attention towards those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Who is that? Here's some good news today. That's you. It's Christians. It's those who have faith in Jesus and keep fast to his testimony. It's the church. That's your family. That's your home. That's your well-being. That's your witness. That's your testimony. Whatever good thing is going on by God in your life, the enemy is right there angry about it and wanting to do something about it. Satan is furious and he's fixed his attention upon those who keep the command of God and believe in Jesus. I hope this Christmas time you realize the, the war that's being waged at Christmas, at that nativity scene, is a spiritual war of the highest stakes. He's the dragon who is present at the manger, but he's also the dragon that's present at our dinner tables. If I could be, um, this morning I, I woke up uh, very early. And uh, someone made a ridiculous call time for our kids to be here at like 6 a.m. So I'm dragging my daughter. My wife's helping me drag my daughter out of bed. And um, Y'all know Daniel is here somewhere. Daniel's one of our worship leaders here on staff. And he was set to have this, this killer worship set. And yesterday, uh, comes down with this virus. He can't talk. And um, in a weak moment, 
um, knowing that we have this more and better campaign that we're really excited about as a church, we believe God's really, truly calling us to this. Um, knowing that there's a $900,000 gap that we still need to meet, knowing how I am excited, like truly, I want you to know how, how um, proud of you I am as a pastor for how we've given to this. But also knowing that $900,000, sometimes you could read that as like a million, and a million feels like a huge number, and then um, you're going to think like, wow, we're never going to make it. And Knowing I've got to stand on stage and tell you this. And to top that all off, some of you don't go to church. You, uh, you, you, you kind of are going against everything inside of you right now just to sit here and listen to me talk. And I know I'm going to tell you about a dragon. So I got a sick worship leader, tell you about a shortfall, and a message about a dragon. And in a weak moment this morning, I thought to myself, what am I doing? Just, just totally honestly, what am I doing? This is crazy. And um, I had to repent. I had to speak to God. Because I realized that in the midst of all the good that God's doing, there is an enemy that is right here with me, trying to twist my mind and twist my heart and twist my soul. I had to realize, God, um, first of all, the dragon thing is easy. Satan's a dragon. You need me to preach on that today because our people need to hear that our God is victorious even over the most vicious of creation. And I think to myself, $900,000 is nothing in comparison to what God can do. And even better, y'all gave $2.1 million of pledges. Oh, my goodness. Lord, how great is that? How, how worthy of celebration is that? And um, I like Daniel a lot, but Daniel's not Jesus. Amen? You can't talk. It's fine, man. It's all right. It's good. But, uh, but uh, he's sick. Okay, whatever. It's going to go on. And, and thank the Lord, Paul, we could, could jump in. And we're grateful for you, man, and your, your efforts to love the church and, and lead us in worship. We just are grateful for that. For that. I, I share all of that with you because I want to show you this. Um, it was just my honest emotions, my honest reflections. And in the midst of it, I can see today how God is doing something amazing in this moment right here, right now. But in the midst of all the good that God is doing, the enemy is right there beside me, whispering in my ear, turning my heart sour, trying to distract me from what God is doing, trying to rob my joy in the midst of what God is doing. And listen, he is so good at this. Every day in your life, you have this happening in you where, where, where God is stirring in your heart, stirring in your job, stirring in your family, some, some good that he's shepherding you through, some, some evil. He's pulling you out of something in your kids that he wants to develop in them, that he's saving them from. All the while, you as a parent are thinking, my kid's never going to amount to nothing. My kid's taking the wrong medication. My kid's hanging out with the wrong people. I'm a terrible parent. He's never going to make it. And there is a dragon in your family and in your heart that you need to realize has no teeth. Not only that, but God has called us to freedom in a place where we will find it where we least expect it. God calls you to the wilderness. You all have nice houses. I like my house. And yet, God calls us to be ready at the drop of a hat to 
flee to wherever he might have us. Not maybe physically, but to think of it in the sense of, am I willing, God, to even leave that which I've built for myself? I mean, what is a home? A home is your permanent residence, your, your place where you said, this is where I will make my life. And to flee is to literally say, God, I need you to provide, to protect, to shield, to comfort, and to feed me. And in the words of John, we see this. Look with me. Last part. Verse 10. He says this. After the dragon is doomed, he says, I heard a loud voice in heaven. Wish I had a megaphone. Saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. Amen? This reminds me of that that hymn that Martin Luther wrote. One of the lines in it, it says, um, The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. Uh, His rage we can't endure, for lo, his doom is sure one little word shall fell him. And uh, verses 10 through 12 are that little word. The little word is simply this. It's the word gospel. The gospel. The gospel destroys the enemy. Some of you have been raised in the church for a long time. You might know that the word gospel, it's a word that means good news. But what you may not know is that it's not a religious word at all. It's not a church word. It's a word that was uh, brought into Christianity uh, from the secular world. It's it from, from the battlefield, actually, ironically. Uh, back in the day when kings would go off to war, they would go with all their men. They didn't have cell phones and things like that. They didn't have carrier pigeons. Uh, they didn't have owls from Harry Potter. They, just, they went out to war, and people would be left behind to wonder what has become of their family, what has become of their country, what has become of their king. On the battlefield, the battle would take place. The victorious king, once the battle was decided, would send back a messenger to herald the good news, the gospel. They would run through the streets of the town proclaiming the gospel. Here's the good news. Our king is victorious. The enemy is defeated. Our country lives on. The best days are still ahead. Our king is victorious. He has overcome the enemy. We are safe from those who would try to kill us. They would call that the gospel, the good news. Rejoice, we are saved. And here's some gospel this season at Christmas time. It's that God proclaims the victory. There's war that's waged on heaven. And in the midst of that, God has his gospel resound throughout the echoing chambers of heaven. And he says, rejoice, our king is victorious. He has won the battle. I want you to walk out of here today knowing that God wins and God proclaims the victory. He himself is responsible for it. He himself is the one who is to be awarded all the credit, all the stats on the sheet, so to speak. He's truly the only and the, the, the true MVP of this battle. 
But his victory is also the same victory for those who trust in the blood of the Lamb. And again, blood of the Lamb, that's a code word brought in from Exodus. The last plague in Egypt was that God was going to send his angel of death from Egypt or over Egypt. And those who obeyed God by killing a lamb and spreading its blood on the doorposts of their home, the angel would see that house, the sacrifice of the lamb. That house would have been said to have trusted in the blood of the lamb. And they they would have their firstborn son spared from death. We take for granted the faith that it takes to kill a lamb and to take its blood and spread it on the doorpost of the front door of our house. Um, if if um, you try this today in Hobart, Indiana, you probably will get arrested or at least institutionalized. If my neighbor did this, I'd be creeped out. Right? We can imagine two Israelite men going out into the field together Perhaps in a sense of desperation, perhaps in a sense of obligation, perhaps in a sense of, well, this is my only hope, my last-ditch effort. One man saying to the other, you're going to do this, right? If you do it, I'll do it. My little son, my little Zebulun, is precious to me. I sure hate for anything to happen to him. But this is what it takes to spare their life. It's a small price to pay, even if I'm wrong. And um, sure enough, these people, they put blood on the doorposts of their homes. And that night, God sends an angel of death across Egypt, killing the firstborn of the sons who did not trust in the blood of the Lamb. And it doesn't say that those who trusted in the blood of the Lamb and perfectly believed it were spared. It it doesn't say that God uh, saw the hearts of the people who trusted in the blood of the Lamb. No, it just says they believed what God told them, so they did the thing God told them to do, and that was the the, the trust, that was the object of their faith, was, was in the obedience of God. God gave the victory to those who conquered by the blood of the Lamb, not because they had a large or sincere measure of faith, but because they had any faith at all. Which is good news for us because some of us feel like we don't trust God perfectly. And the reality is that not one person here, not one person here, everybody just listen, not one person here trusts God perfectly. I want to forgive you for whatever you think about my faith. I want you to forgive me for whatever you think about my faith. But there are moments where I don't trust God perfectly. None of us do. And that's why God claims the victory for us. That's why Christ came and died as the Lamb of God in our place. His blood was shed, and in doing so, he silenced the accusations of the devil, accusing us of all of our sin. Jesus showed him that our sins had been forgiven on the cross. And now there is no more sin. This is great news. This deserves an amen coming up. There's no more sin that Satan can accuse us from. Jesus has shut him up. He's defeated the dragon, and we have already conquered only by the blood of the Lamb. The victory has already been won. And as I read this, that's kind of what's crazy to me about this verse, is that that God, in the middle of the battle, this, this falls right in the middle of the battle between heaven and earth, God already proclaims the victory. But the war's not over. I mean, how insanely awesome is that? Look at what he says. Now salvation has come. At the end of that verse, they have already conquered. It's past tense. We still have 
pages in the rest of the story, but God is claiming the victory. Have you ever watched the Super Bowl and it's like an awful game? It's just a terrible game. It's like a route. It's like 45 to 10. And um, coincidentally, that's the score of the last time the Bears won the Super Bowl, 45 to 10. And I remember um, watching VHSs of that. I wasn't born yet. Surprise. Um, that doesn't make me a legitimate human, I know. But uh, watching VHS tapes back in the day of, of the Bears game, and I remember this moment where, uh, who was the coach back then? Oh, right, Dicka, yeah. Dicka. I remember Dicka getting like a giant Gatorade bath. There was like five minutes left on the clock. And uh, the game's still going, but the team's already celebrating the victory. That's how sure it is. Like, like there's no way they could mess this up. That's what's happening here in Revelation chapter 12. The team has won. God is victorious. Time is still on the clock, but the thing's over. And listen, here's God's announcement to you today, is that your king has won the battle. You are safe, and your best days are not behind you. They're ahead of you. That's what John's trying to get at here through this woman and the dragon and the deliverer, is that through this epic war, God has won the battle. Today, we live in the victory of that battle, even though there's still time left on the clock. Even though the enemy's still thrashing about here on the earth, even though our family's gonna feel the effects of wickedness and evil in this world, we have confidence and hope and security knowing that God wins. We claim the blood, or we claim God's victory by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Verse 11, for they, not, they love not their lives even unto death. How do we overcome? By the blood of of the lamb. That's the actual victory. Jesus has, has claimed the actual victory, but also by the word of their testimony, by living out that victory in life. When the Cubs won the World Series two years ago, um, it's already been two years, guys. What a drought. Um, I, I, um, I just got a kick out of watching all these posts on Facebook saying, we win, we win, Cubs win, we win. And I thought to myself, you didn't do anything. You play for the team? Like, shoot, dude, like, we, who's the we? What did you do? What did you do? You cheered from your room? Nice. Good job, man. Couldn't have done it without you. But this is true of sports, right? Uh, the, we live a victory won by someone else. And in this way, we're more like uh, the fans in the stands cheering and enjoying the victory of God. God has won, and yet we say we win. We identify with the victor and we live our lives out in the victory of God as if it was our own victory. That's what the blood of the lamb and the testimony that we live out does for us. See, Christianity is not, it's not about living out the victory as if we've won it. It's about living out the victory that God's won. By faith, it is our victory which should give us incredible optimism about the future even when we are about to die. Look what it says, they love not their lives even unto death. The NLT translate this, they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. How do you know if you really get that Christ has already won the victory for you? When you hear the words, um, you have cancer, and while it may reshape your future here on earth, it doesn't seem to shake the confidence you have about what's happening after death. You know you've won the victory. When you watch your dear Christian loved one, their life ebb away without 
ultimate despair. Despair, absolutely, but not ultimate despair. Because of faith that we have that this is not the end for them. When our confidence is in the ultimate victory, it keeps us resolute and rejoicing, even in the face of death. We overcome the tactics of the devil, who's the dragon at the manger, who knew full well that this baby born in Bethlehem was his impending doom. There was no fight. God has no rivalry. This is God as only God can be. So I guess this is really just a roundabout way of saying Merry Christmas. God has saved his people from the accuser, the devil, through that baby-born Savior of the world. And our God has won the victory for us. 